Athletic sports involve team play and team competition, and so are especially good ways of building health and releasing emotional tension. These activities bring large groups of muscles into action and train groups of muscles to work together. It's up to you to see that your body gets the activity it needs for better physical and mental health. The Scholars and Iron Podcast. The ideal physique is often seen as a product of individual labor and could be interpreted in some senses as countercultural to how most people look today. But did you know that in the 1930s, the U.S. government was actively promoting and shaping the ideal masculine physique? It's hard to imagine any administration doing such a thing today. But according to Dr. Rachel Louise Moran in her book, Governing Bodies, presidents such as Franklin Roosevelt, as well as John F. Kennedy, were spearheading statewide initiatives to get American men looking lean and strong. I spoke to Dr. Moran, who's an assistant professor of history at the University of North Texas about her book, and some of its key findings. So let's get into it. Your research is looking at the origins of government intervention in shaping the ideal American male physique. So what prompted you to write about this subject? I started writing about this, working on this, back when um, Michelle Obama was the first lady, and she had just launched the Let's Move program and had been pushing for these other um, reforms like calorie counts on menus, And it's also the same time that Mayor Bloomberg was introducing those um, bans on large sodas in New York. There was legislation against trans fats. And it really seems like a few lifetimes ago. But at that time, there was a really big backlash against those moves. So people um, on Fox News were calling her the French fry police and talking a lot about the nanny state. And on the other hand, it seemed like some of the people who were very supportive of these moves we're concerned about sort of quote unquote doing something about obesity in the US. And that seemed to be coming from a pretty moralistic and fat phobic space. So there's just a lot of tension about what it would mean to legislate some kind of fitness or wellness. Like was it the government's business? If yes, what were the right reasons for them to do it? What were the right ways for them to do it? What were the right boundaries? So I got kind of obsessed with what that might mean historically. Like, was this really brand new? I looked at a number of movements, basically, in which elements of the federal government were involved in managing body weight. The Civilian Conservation Corps, I guess, is one of my favorite programs to talk about, and I feel like it really gets at this idea of what it means for the government to intervene. If people don't know, basically, the Civilian Conservation Corps was a jobs program in the Great Depression, and it took young men, mostly in their 20s, to these camps. And basically, they did all kinds of conservation work. So they created trails, a lot of which are still there today. If you go to a state park, they planted lots of trees, that kind of thing. But they weren't just being given these jobs. There was also this really intense social engineering goal. 
because the economy had obviously tanked in the 30s, there was a concern that men were unemployed, but it was also this fear that young unemployed men might give up on the sort of American way of life, the family breadwinner model. Maybe they'd turn to crime. Maybe they would. I mean, there was even fears they would become gay. They would basically just desert the family, which actually was happening quite a bit. So that was tied in some ways to the idea that men were underweight, they were undernourished, they were physically weak. So we really tied this idea of physical weakness with weak masculinity, weak family providership. So men would go live in these CCC camps and participate in a pretty coercive body project. They would eat what they were fed. Um, They would work the jobs, these very physical jobs they were given. They slept when they were told to sleep, and they would do calisthenics as part of their CCC training, uh, essentially using an army model. And if it wasn't for the Great Depression, I think that kind of aggressive body project would be pretty unimaginable for civilians. For about 200,000 young men each year that the Corps existed, they complied with this program that specifically advertised it would make boys into men, that was always publicizing how many pounds men gained while they were there. There's one speech where FDR told a group of CCC men that he was just like them, except that they were all gaining about 12 pounds each, and he was trying to lose 12 pounds. That's fascinating. Now, in hearing this, and you mentioned before a so-called nanny state, you're describing something a bit different conceptually, and you use the term advisory state. So could you talk a little bit more about what that is exactly? Yeah, so the advisory state is basically the way that I, it's my little term, but it's my term for essentially the way we don't always see how the state works. I would think about it in the way that especially public-private partnerships form in the U.S. a lot, like with the CCC. The advisory state is essentially the term I came up with to try and explain that when we think about the role of the state in what we do, we often imagine it as this really aggressive thing. And sometimes it is really aggressive. You know, there are specifically legislation about what people can do with their bodies when it comes to, you know, old eugenics laws or questions about abortion or all kinds of things. But when it comes to things like weight, what I've found is that the government's there, different, you know, state governments, federal government, different aspects of government, they're there. But it's often really subtle. Um, It often uses models. Essentially, the term um, is sometimes called nudging. They use nudges to try and encourage people to do certain things as opposed to this really aggressive requirement. So um, there's a fear, I think, sometimes, especially around men, that if you want to reshape men's bodies, which was really important to the state at a lot of times, um, in part for those uh, reasons of masculinity, strong masculinity, like I talked about with the CCC, but also because of the idea that you need a strong labor force, physically strong, um, depending what moment in history it is, and you also need a potentially ready military. And so those things tend to rely on men having a reasonable amount of physical fitness. So you want to manage those things if you're a state. But especially in the U.S. context, there's so much anxiety about not having too big a state. And one of the moments we really see that, I think, is in the Cold War. 
So in the Cold War, you have this moment where after World War II, there's all these studies that say American kids are physically unfit. There's also reports that come out that talk about the really high rate of draft rejections in World War II. Rejections are actually for a lot of reasons, but the one that people kind of latch on to is physical unfitness. So there's a lot of language about Americans as flabby, as soft. JFK calls you know them the soft American at one point. Starting in the Eisenhower years, they want to improve American fitness, or at least the image of fitness. But it's the Cold War. Um, and so everything American had to be not Soviet. American fitness has to be very clearly about freedom and democracy and capitalism. Um, it couldn't be coercive. It couldn't be authoritarian. It had to be sneaky. So in the U.S. context, what you get is the President's Council on Youth Fitness, eventually the President's Council on Physical Fitness. And basically, that's a public-private partnership. So it becomes this government program that's really adamant that it's not going to force anybody to do anything. A lot of people think of themselves as forced to run the mile in high school, um, which, you know, you may well have been uh, through the President's Council on Physical Fitness. But it's not because the federal government was. It's because... Um, it's a decision made at the local level um, using fitness um, guidelines from the state. In any case, though, um, especially in the JFK years, the program really grew, but it grew in the super capitalist, freedom-obsessed way. So you use celebrities, you use TV, you use advertising. And, of course, that would never be as effective as a more forceful approach. Bud Wilkinson, who was, uh, of course, a football coach, but also a celebrity spokesman for the President's Council on Physical Fitness. He wrote at one point that no free man could admire the Soviet system of calisthenic drills, but he also acknowledged that the system had strength. Basically, the U.S. government just absolutely couldn't do something like that. So they used these advisory state mechanisms. They gave people advice. They advertised what they wanted. They encouraged things with guidelines but more guidelines than regulations. And by and large, I assume the emphasis racially is on white men. And also, where did women play a role in this? Or was it just assumed that they would be tending to the affairs of the house? Sure. So first for the race question. I mean, of course, it depends where we're looking at, but obviously racism shapes what a strong national physique might mean, like you're suggesting. So when you think about the Civilian Conservation Corps, that's a program that was slightly more inclusive than some other jobs programs at the time. I mean, it still wasn't great, especially in parts of the South, but there were black men in the CCC. But the publicity of the CCC, which regularly features these, you know, shirtless young men who have sort of increased musculature because of their time in the CCC, they're all over the posters, the booklets, everything, right? The publicity almost never features men of color in these images about bodybuilding. And uh, that really comes from basically the idea that a strong black man, who was certainly needed economically, was also imagined as a threat. A threat in a number of ways, but also kind of a threat to fragile white masculinity. And on the other hand, toward the very end, toward the end of the book, actually, I write more about the welfare state and women in the 60s and 70s. And we also see a lot of race 
um, appear as an issue in this period. Basically, social welfare, which is the Civilian Conservation Corps was social welfare, but if you called it a bodybuilding program, you know, that was a lot less offensive. So when you talk about social welfare, like aid to families with dependent children and food aid, Basically, we see that black bodies are used in all kinds of ways, and black mothers' bodies were especially scrutinized by the 70s and 80s, um, but they were usually called too fat. So it's sort of an opposite take there. Um, and that image of fatness, that imagined fatness, was used as evidence of all kinds of things, right? That if black women were supposedly overweight, then... It proved a lack of morality, it proved bad mothering, it proved bad decision-making, it proved laziness. And all those things, even though actually, of course, the majority of women using uh, most of these programs were white, the image of the overweight black mother became the sort of cultural symbol of the program, which in turn made it easier to cut, um, made it easier to have more paternalistic regulations about to weigh mothers, for instance, who use WIC. So the racial imagination of bodies and body weight has so much political power. The discourse on obesity in this country is interesting because on one hand, you have, you know, anorexia, and on the opposite end, you have this sort of very non-judgmental idea of obesity, you know, like not for fat shaming and so on. And this is sort of a loaded question, but when did obesity really emerge in the public's consciousness as a threat? Yeah, it's an interesting question because, of course, it creeps up alongside um, other discourses. So you start to see medical writing um, as early as the 50s that's worried about obesity. But at the same time, then you get to the 60s and there is a huge, accurate panic over malnutrition, you know, emaciated children in the South, that kind of thing. And um, these things kind of coexist. So there's a lot of... Um, uncertainty about what the bigger problem is. But the idea that obesity is really a big um, public health problem, you see really emerge. I mean, there's a lot of anxiety about sugar in the 70s, but it's not necessarily about fatness. It's about sugar. It just it has fat phobic language in it, but it's about sugar. Uh, um, I think it's really in the 80s that you start to see some of that rise to the fore. But you do see arguments about people, especially women on welfare, being fat in the 60s. You mentioned women on welfare. And so is this an issue that's broken down along lines of social class? Because when I think of an old school working class person, you know, a miner, a factory worker, someone pretty strong and built where today I almost feel there's this sort of stereotype of the overweight service sector worker. And so what I'm wondering is, does something like obesity arise with the evolution of the working class at this particular juncture? So an interesting moment, um, I'd say, would be in the, um, in the early part of the book. It's actually kind of funny because I did imagine originally I was writing a book about women and weight. And it turned out that a lot of state interest is much more in men and weight because they're more concerned with the um, 
the remunerated workforce, right, and people who are doing jobs in the uh, paid economy and, um, and the strength of workers in the early 20th century. Basically, when you start seeing more white, middle-class women in the paid economy in the um, 50s, 60s, um, that's when you start to see more attention to women's bodies. And one of the ways that that plays out is it in more concerns about the idea that their bodies are soft through things like like one thing they refer to as stenographer spread. The idea that like your butt spreads out because you're doing the sedentary work all day. You're typing. And, and you know, that's not about a strong military. That's uh, a fairly aesthetic concern. But it appears in President's Council on Physical Fitness materials as they try to kind of figure out how they talk to adults anyway. So So in other words, as women became more visible in the economy, they got more attention, they were more judged in that regard. So was there something different in terms of women's workout regiments versus, you know, the working class man? Yeah. Well, and I guess I should clarify that this has to do so much with the state. So obviously women's fitness uh, and weight was well judged in the early 20th century. If you think about the model of the flapper and 1920s weight loss uh, regimens and all that. But it's just a question of when the U.S. federal government cares about body weight of women in particular. And yeah, I think it has to do with one of the ways that it's explained is often about um, in the 70s, they start talking more about healthcare costs. But before that, they talk a lot about absenteeism. So the idea that if people are not fit, they're going to be more likely to miss work and therefore drain the economy. That becomes some of the language that they use. In terms of women's workouts, I mean, a lot of the President's Council was really originally aimed at children. Um, I think that's part of the advisory state mechanism. We're already a lot more comfortable with the government telling children what to do or telling us what to do with children than we are with them telling adults what to do. So children become a much easier entering wedge. But also it makes sense that if you're worried about future soldiers and future workers, you know, you want kids to exercise. So early on, they do put forth a lot of programs that are inclusive of girls. So there's very little in terms of their youth programming. There's not a lot of segregation. There's segregation, though, in the language they use. So there's a series of ads in the 60s, for instance, where the President's Council on Physical Fitness is promoting different things you can do because you become fit. And so they have boys who are astronauts, right, with this sort of the future belongs to the fit. And they have girls who are nurses, mothers, sort of gender expected jobs that they could get, you know, were they adequately fit enough that they could at least thrive at if they were fit. How would the perspective of that generation seem to the present, in particular with the so-called obesity epidemic? You know, so here in America, there's a very consumptionist model. You know, do as you wish, eat how you please. 
But in their rivals in the Soviet Union, things appeared a lot more strict. I mean, in the 80s, you had this concept of, you know, the new socialist man, and this guy was jacked. So how would the advisors, let's say, of yesteryear see us and the obesity epidemic of today? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't subscribe to the language of obesity epidemic anyway, just to, just to get that out there. But I do think that um, I think that a lot of the terms for what can or cannot be done by the state are just really set by our politics. And I think that they often don't even have to do with the body. So a lot of our language, um, when you talk about, say, the 2000s and fights over um, whether or not our freedom is encroached by soda bans, I don't think the majority of people who were fighting about that were actually fighting about obesity um, or about weight or about sugar or any of these things. Um, certainly, uh, you know, soft drink companies involved were concerned about their bottom lines. Um, people from a sort of Tea Party perspective were concerned about the government, period, no matter what the thing is. It was quote-unquote nanny stating. So I think in a lot of ways, fitness and, you know, food and all these things are just kind of symbols of these larger fights as opposed to, you know, anybody actually necessarily, or I shouldn't say anybody, but as opposed to the primary concern being about weight itself. It's usually a much larger political and moralistic fight. That's all we have for today, guys. I just want to thank Dr. Moran for a fascinating talk. Music by Robert Slump. For Scholars in Iron, this is Joe, signing off.